You may be seated, and as you're being seated, if you would, take out your Bibles with me, God's Word, and turn to Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, uh, by the way, I, I told David before the service as the praise team was practicing that song, I told Julie uh, as we started singing that song, I don't know about you, but that to me, that's one of the most wonderful songs, just singing praises to him. It shares the gospel all the way through. Uh, I have this list. David knows them. I added to it this morning. I have this list. I call them funeral songs. And David knows when I say, hey, that's a funeral song, that when I die, if he's still alive, he's going to be leading the worship at... Uh, well, <laughs> I didn't mean that bad. I didn't mean that bad. You're 15 years older than me, but I didn't mean that bad. If I die before David does and he leads the worship, that's one of the funeral songs that I want to have y'all singing if you choose to come to my funeral. By the way, it's just going to be a lot of singing, a lot of praise. My friend Gary Perminer, I'm gonna, um, he's going to share a, a gospel presentation, and then you're going to be out. But it's going to be a time of praising. That's one of the songs I want uh, the church, the congregation, family, or no one who comes, whoever comes, I uh, want to be singing that song. I love singing. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but I've always liked to sing uh, praises to the Lord. Speaking of singing, when our kids were little, I was surprised only two people in the first service knew this song. But when, when our kids were little, I don't know if they learned it in church or we were constantly in the car playing a CD of children's music around the house or in the car. And there was a song that our kids just uh, started singing that that as I was studying, and I hope you'll understand why this song came to mind, as I was studying this week, this song that we taught our kids came to mind, and um, it's the name of the, the song is, I Just Want to Be a Sheep. How many of y'all know that song? Oh, there are a few more. Okay, there are a few more. I, I'm going to sing it for you, although I can't sing very well. I'm going to sing parts of it. Uh, so it's a children's song, and it goes something like this. I just want to be a sheep, ba, 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 ba. I just want to be a sheep, ba, 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 ba. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. I just want to be a sheep. Ba, 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 ba. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Because they're not fair, you see. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee. Because they're all sad, you see. I don't want to be a Sadducee. How many of y'all, now, how many of y'all knew that song? Oh, okay. Here's why I wanted to sing you that song. Here's why that song has been on my mind. We have seen, uh, we've studied over the last weeks uh, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion as in 951, Luke 951, he sets his sights on Jerusalem. And from that point on, there has just been a barrage of people trying to discredit Jesus, trying to stop his ministry, going against him. We have, last week, we talked about who the Herodians were, who sent spies into the camp of Jesus to ask Jesus questions. We've seen time and again the Pharisees ask Jesus questions, trying to discredit him, trying to get the, the crowd to turn against him, or trying to get Rome to turn against him, the government. We've seen the scribes, uh, the, the, the keepers of the law, the teachers of the law, try to question him to discredit him. Today, for the first time, we're going to see the Sadducees, those who were Sadducees. We'll understand why they were Sadducees. They are going to do the same thing. They're trying to discredit Jesus. They're wanting to stop his march toward Jerusalem. They're trying to stop his ministry. And so in 2027, chapter 2027 of Luke, here's what we read in, the, in 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So going back to that children's song, that's why the song says, I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. Why were the Sadducees sad? 
because they did not believe in the resurrection. Not just the resurrection of the Messiah. They did not believe in the afterlife at all. And throughout the Jewish history, what we see in Jewish history is we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they are in conflict with one another. But this is one of those times when they have a common enemy, and the common enemy is Jesus. And so they're going to uh, join forces, and evidently the Sadducees have been watching the Pharisees try to trip Jesus up, seeing the Herodians try to trip, trip Jesus up. The Sadducees in their pride thought, well, we're going to do what those people couldn't do. These Sadducees that did not believe in the afterlife. That's very important. They did not believe in the afterlife. They thought that someone lived and the day that they ceased to breathe, the day of their funeral, it was over with. There was nothing going to take place from that point on. Yet, they're going to come to Jesus with this question. They say in verse 28, and they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Where does Moses teach that? Well, if you want to look it up, it's taught in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. I encourage you to do further study on this passage because we don't have time to get into all the details of it today. But in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses teaches... Uh, the Lord is given the, the word, the law, and it's called the, the law of the leverite marriage or the law of the leverite marriage. And it simply says this, if a man marries a woman and the man dies without children, that within the Jewish belief, within the Jewish custom, if he has a brother, the brother can and should take on the widow as his wife. And if they have a child together, the second brother, if they have a child together, it would be seen as the dead husband's child. And the whole purpose of it was, as you know, if you've studied the Old Testament and the Jewish, uh, the Jewish teachings and Jewish beliefs, they believed in clans and they believed in family names. And the only way that that dead man's family name could continue on, the only way that his legacy could continue on is if his brother married his widowed wife and had a child that first child would be considered the dead man's child. And so that's what they're referring to. Understand they're talking about this Leverite marriage, Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 25. They're bringing up dying, and here we get to where they think they're going to be able to trip Jesus up. Verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. It wasn't just one, uh, one man with one brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and look what happened. And he died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left, left no children and died. So the scenario, which is absurd, by the way, the scenario that they're setting up is, Jesus, you know the law of leveret marriage. So let's say, just by chance, that a woman marries a man, he dies. His second brother marries her, he dies. Third brother marries her, he dies. Fourth brother marries her, he dies. All the way through seven brothers. First of all, I wouldn't want to be one of those brothers because I wouldn't want to take that wife. That's not a good scenario for one of these brothers. But they say, what would happen? They thought they have Jesus where there is no answer to this absurd question. And so they said, verse 32, afterward, the woman also died. Here's the question. Verse 33, in the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? 
for the seven had her as wife. See, they, they think they're going to present Jesus with this, with this scenario that is so absurd, which, by the way, note that they were Sadducees. Luke tells us that they didn't believe in the resurrection, yet their question has to do with the afterlife. Their question has to do with the resurrection, and they think that Jesus has no response that if he were to say, well, he's gonna, she's going to be the wife of the first husband, then she's guilty of, of incest or, I guess, adultery for, for, for marrying the other, six, the other six brothers. They think, oh, we've got him where we want him. They ask a question about the resurrection. It really had nothing to do with the wife. It, it really had nothing to do with the brothers. They wanted to talk about the resurrection. But yet they didn't believe in the resurrection. The only way that I can help us see the absurdity of this, not only seven brothers, um, not just one or two brothers, but seven brothers, but the fact that the Sadducees would ask a question about the resurrection, and this is going to fall short, but the, the only way I can help you see the absurdity of this would be if after the service you and I are talking and we're talking about Christmas and we're talking about Christmas movies and I were to ask you this question, what do you think the best Hallmark Christmas movie is? It would be absurd because everyone knows there are no good Hallmark Christmas movies and it would be absurd. It would be something that you'd say, why do you even ask that question? There aren't any. But yet the, the Sadducees said, hey, in the resurrection, which we don't believe in, whose wife will she be? And Jesus answered masterfully. The Sadducees thought they could do what the Herodians couldn't, what the uh, Pharisees couldn't, what the teachers of the law couldn't. They thought they were going to come in as Superman and rescue the day and discredit Jesus and his teaching and his ministry. And they said to, and Jesus said to them, by the way, um, look up, but write in your Bible, in, your, in the passage, in the, the side of this, Mark chapter 12, because it's in Mark chapter 12 that Mark tells the same account. He says that the Sadducees came in and asked the very same question. So he's talking about this same account. And Mark gives us this same answer, but he gives us an introduction. He says that Jesus introduced his answer with saying something, something to this effect, which, um, which is pointed, which is really a slap in the face to the Sadducees. He, Mark says that he says to the Sadducees, listen, uh, you're wrong. You're not only wrong, a literal translation, you're not only wrong, you're really wrong. You couldn't be more wrong than you are. You're really wrong even in your questioning. And then he gives them, oh, this is so important. And then Mark, and then Jesus, Mark says that Jesus said, and here's why you're wrong. Number one, because you don't even know the word of God. You think you know the word of God because you brought up Deuteronomy chapter 25. You don't even know the word of God. That's why you're really, really wrong. And not only that, you don't even know God. I want to tell you something. I wish we had time today just to look at Mark and to talk about that because Jesus' answer for us in our time and our day uh, is, is crucial. The Sadducees thought they knew the word, and Jesus said, you don't even know the word of God. You don't know scripture. Folks, listen to me. What we believe must be founded upon the word of God. That is why when you come here, when we come to church we want to study from the Word of God because if we study from anything else, it's going to fall short. It doesn't hold water. Only the Word of God holds water, and we can only base our faith on the Word of God, not the Word of man, not on anything else in this life. We must, we must base our faith on the Word of God. And so just listen to me. If, 
if you go somewhere, if you're listening to somebody and they do not teach from the word of God, beware. Beware. So, I'll go off of that. So, Jesus says, Luke chapter 20, verse 34, and Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. I want to stop right there and kind of unpack a little bit so far of what Jesus has said. He, he goes back to marriage. They asked a question about this leveret marriage and whose wife will she be in the, in the afterlife, in the resurrection that they didn't believe in. And Jesus says, oh, you're wrong, even in your question. You're wrong in your understanding because you don't even know the word of God. He says, the sons of this age, talking about the sons of our time living right here on earth, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to heaven, and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. You see, here was another faulty understanding of the Sadducees and quite honestly of the Pharisees and of the Jews. They thought that we, that we live life here on earth, that we're married and we're living life here on earth and we have children and we're going through all the daily routines and then there comes a point when we die and then if we attain the afterlife in their mindset, that when we go to heaven, when we go to be with the Lord, that everything just continues on. That we live here on earth, there's a point of death, and then after that point of death, we go to heaven, and everything just continues as it was. Except for we don't have the hardships of earth, we don't have the struggles of earth, we don't have the sickness. Everything will be good in heaven, but it's going to be just like it was on earth, uh, just, um, just, just not with all the problems. And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. You don't even understand about the resurrection. You don't even understand about heaven. And he says, because here's what you don't understand. That while we marry here on earth, while life goes on here on earth, the afterlife is very different. That when we get to heaven, heaven is going to be very different. He says, there's no need for marriage in heaven. What's he mean by that? Well, we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, and we see um, the, the purpose of marriage. We see the creation account, and we see uh, that Adam is, is naming all of creation, and everything has its counterpart, male and female. And then God says, oh, look at Adam. He's all alone, and it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a counterpart. He needs a companion in, the, in, in life. And so he put Adam to sleep, and he took a rib from Adam's side, and he created woman um, and named her Eve. The purpose of marriage is twofold according to Scripture. And we could get into a lot more, obviously, but basically the purpose of marriage is twofold. Companionship, because it's not good for man to be alone, and for procreation, to have children. For us as Christians, for, for we as, as Christians to have children, that we introduce them to the gospel, that we disciple, and that we raise them to be followers of Christ. That's the purpose of marriage, for companionship and for procreation to have children who follow the Lord. And Jesus said, listen, you've got it all wrong. That we, it's not that we live and then we die and then everything continues on in heaven. It's just all the good stuff. He says, no, you don't even understand what heaven is going to be like. That there's no need for marriage. That there's no need for that type of companionship. Why? 
Because we are in the companionship of the Lord himself. But we're in the presence in heaven. We're in the presence of the Lord himself. Now, let me be clear. And I've prayed all week because I didn't want anyone. I know there's, there's two ways people can approach that. Or people could respond to what I've just shared with you and what Jesus says. Some people are going to say, so you mean I'm not going to be married to this guy in heaven? Praise the Lord. I've had enough of him. Or I'm not going to be married to her? Praise the Lord. You wouldn't say it aloud, but I can see by the smiles on your faces that some of you are thinking that. The other side, <laughs> the other side, I want to tell you, the other side is, and it, it's that way for me. The other side is a little, it's like a punch in the gut. The other side of that, the way people receive that is, I don't know. I don't know that I like even hearing that. Jill and I have been married 26 years. We've been together 29 years, 28 years. And I want to tell you something. Other than, other than my relationship with Jesus Christ, other than receiving salvation by grace through faith when I was a young child, that is the greatest gift that I've ever experienced here on earth is my salvation. But can I tell you the second greatest gift that God has given me here on earth is my relationship with my wife. I'm telling you, I love that girl. I love that woman. I love my kids. But the second greatest gift that God has given me on earth is my wife. And she will tell you, I've always been bad about this. Uh, I've had to go on mission trips. I've had to go uh, you know, to conferences and conventions. And, and I've had to go places um, I don't enjoy being away from her. Um, I've gone on mission trips. Typically, going on a week-long mission trip, there's one day that's kind of an off day. You can relax. I'm miserable those days because Julie's not with me. And I'm, I'm bored, and I'm thinking about her, and I keep thinking, well, if she were here, boy, I would enjoy this more. So what I want you to know, what I want you to see is I, I love my wife, and I cannot imagine when we understand, when we read in other passages what heaven is going to be like, and it's going to be a place of joy, it's going to be a, a place of praise, and there's not going to be any bad stuff going on there. It's going to be a place of eternal joy. On this earthly side, I say, how can it be that good if Julia is not my wife? And I just want to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But I know what Scripture teaches and I know what Scripture teaches is there's not a need for that type of relationship. And I know people are going to automatically ask, well, MJ, do you, do you not think that we'll know? No, I think we'll know one another. I think that I'll know you in heaven and that you'll know me. I think that I'll know Julie in heaven. And I think that she'll know me. I even believe that Julie is going to know that I was her husband and I will know that she was my wife. Why do I have that belief? Well, because not long ago or actually several months back, we studied in Luke uh, what is in the other Gospels uh, that's called the Mount of Transfiguration. That Jesus goes up on the mountain, he takes a few of the disciples with him, and he is transfigured. And the disciples said, here's what we saw. We saw Jesus, and he was talking to Moses, and he was talking to Elijah. They were able to identify who they were. So I believe in heaven we're going to be able to identify one another. But the need for the relationship that's, that, that we have here. We're not going to need that type of relationship because we are going to be in the presence of the almighty God. And it goes beyond even our wildest imagination. It goes beyond what we can grasp here on this side of heaven. And so Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. 
You've got it all wrong because you don't know the word. You've got it all wrong because you don't even know God. And so he says, but for those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, how is someone considered worthy to go to heaven? It's not through good deeds. It's not through going to church. It's not through being a good person. Scripture is clear that the only way we're considered worthy is what has been imparted upon us to us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That when we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, that by grace we are saved through faith. And at that moment, we are considered worthy, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he has done. And he says, so for those who, who will attain to that age, the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry, they're not given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. And then he begins to teach some about what it's going to be like in heaven. We're not going to be able to die again. And look at what he says next, because they're equal to angels. We have to have a, a proper view of death and heaven and what happens. And you've heard me say this before. When someone dies who is a Christian, the Bible does not teach that we become angels. We don't receive our wings and become an angel. That's not what Jesus says. He says we become like angels. We're equal to angels. So what's it mean if we don't become angels? It means like just like the angels, he's already said it. We don't die anymore. We become immortal. Angels are immortal. They cannot die. We become immortal. That's what being equal to angels is. And then he says they are made the sons of God because they are sons of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we were singing about just a, a moment ago. He tells the Sadducees, you don't know what you're talking about. You couldn't be more wrong even in your thoughts and in your understanding and even in your questioning because that's not what it's going to be like. But he doesn't leave it there. He wants to address their, their basic, their main, their big doctrinal problem, theological problem about the afterlife, about resurrection. He says in verse 37, but that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. What I want us to see today, and, and there's so many directions that we could go. Uh, what I want us to see, first of all today, this isn't going to be in your notes, but it is appropriate that we, that we think of heaven. Jesus said, you're wrong in your understanding. It's okay to think of heaven. It's okay to study heaven. It's okay to, to daydream what heaven is going to be like. That's actually biblical. Did you know that? It's actually biblical. I read a great article this week by a pastor named Sam Storms. Uh, you could read. It's a lengthy article, so I'm not going to go through all of it. He writes for the Billy Graham uh, Evangelistic Association. Sam Storms, if you want to read this. But he, he says there, biblically, there are four reasons why we as believers should be meditating upon heaven and the afterlife. Four reasons why we as a church, when we come together, we should be singing songs about heaven and about the afterlife, just as we were singing just a moment ago. He says, number one, because when we meditate upon heaven, when we meditate upon what's going to happen after this life, he says it frees us from the dependence on wealth and comfort. And he uses an elaborate form, and I won't go through all of it. He uses Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21 as a reference there, where Paul tells us that our citizenship is not in here on earth, that our citizenship is in heaven. 
And he says that when we understand where we are truly citizens of, and it's not here, it's not the U.S., it's heaven, that it frees us from that American mindset that everything should be to acquire wealth and everything is to acquire comfort in our life. He says it frees us from that unbiblical thought. Secondly, he says, and for me, at where I am in my life and what's been going on right now, he says the second reason that we need to meditate upon heaven, it allows us to respond appropriately to the injustices of this life. Let me elaborate on that. Revelation 19 opens up. John says, and I heard this great sound from heaven. And it was a chorus singing praises. And he says again, I heard this great sound as if, and he gives a description, and they were singing praises to the Lord. And it's later on in the middle of Revelation 19 that we see the Lord revealed. And, and he, he is, John paints him in some some imagery of riding on the white horse and and having the name that is above every name but it opens up with praise to the almighty what happens that causes praise to the almighty in revelation 18 here's what happens it's judgment upon the wicked that finally the lord has said enough is enough I'm going to give people what they deserve. I'm going to give the wicked the judgment that they deserve. And in Revelation 18, he judges the wicked. And in Revelation 19, the heavenly host, or actually the, the elders, begin to sing praises to the Lord Almighty. Over the last month, we don't have to go around the world. Over the last month, we have seen evil that we can't imagine. We've seen wickedness that has taken our breath away in our own state. That a beautiful little girl would be kidnapped and murdered some hours later and thrown into a dumpster. That's wicked. That a beautiful young college student can go missing and all the signs show that there's something tragic has happened to her. And a man has done it before, has been arrested. To find a corpse of a young girl in, is it Dothan? In the woods. And a mama being arrested. Folks, that is wicked. And that is evil. In Sam Storms, the pastor says that when we study the word of God and we understand what is to come, that heaven is going to be the, the end result. Here's how that helps us. Because we realize that God is not going to put up with it forever. And that there's going to come a point when the wickedness is going to be judged. There's going to come a point when the evil is going to be judged. And because we understand that, it gives us maybe just a glimmer of hope. It gives us just a little bit of a deep breath to say, as bad and as evil as this world is, I can continue to live because I know one day the Almighty is going to speak. He says, third, when we meditate upon heaven, it produces the fruit of endurance and perseverance in our life. And he references Romans 8. The suffering of this time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be 
revealed to us in heaven. We go through difficulties. We have situations that are just painfully horrible to live through. The death of people that we love. The suffering of sickness that we're personally going through. Of someone that we love is going through. And sometimes it makes us just want to scream out and give up and throw our hands up and say, How can I do it? I can't do it anymore. But the Bible teaches us that when we think of the glory that's to come, it gives us endurance and perseverance to, to live on, to push on. Because Paul says the suffering of this time is not worth comparing. It doesn't compare to the glory that is going to be revealed in heaven. And finally, he says it motivates us to say no to fleshly desires. It gives us that energy. It gives us that motivation that when we're being bombarded with temptation and the fleshly desires that are already within us, to say no. And he references Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We need to have a proper understanding of what happens after this life. And as believers, it's appropriate that we meditate upon heaven and that we sing about heaven and that we understand God's word about heaven. So what does this answer in the, in the process that we've been doing the last couple of weeks? So what does this passage, what does Jesus' answer, first of all, teach us, reveal to us about God? And here's what it reveals to us, that he is a living God. He is not a dead God. He is a living God. How does it reveal that to us? How does it show us that? How does it teach us that? Because we go back to verse 37, and, and Jesus said, But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Why didn't he just say in Deuteronomy 3? Because there, there was Deuteronomy, but there was no Deuteronomy 3. Y'all know. We've added the, the chapters and the numbers just to help us for reference point. Jesus said, but you know, in the passage about the bush, the burning bush, when God spoke to Moses, he says, where he, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus is addressing their theological problem about there is no resurrection, because once you die, you're dead from that point on. It doesn't continue on. That's what the Sadducees thought. He says, no, 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 you're wrong. Go back to what happened with Moses, and he's in the burning bush, and the angel of the Lord, God himself, spoke to Moses and said, Moses, this is who I am. I am the God of. He didn't say, I am, I was the God of Abraham before he died, and he's no longer. I was the God of Isaac before he died and is no longer. I was the God of Jacob who died and is no longer. He said, no, I am the God of Abraham who is still alive. I am the God of Isaac who is still alive. I am the God of Jacob who is still alive by grace through faith, just as we are. He says, you know that passage. You know the account. And what he's doing is showing the Sadducees, listen, God is not a dead God. God is an alive God. And oh, how that changes so much of our life. When we remember that truth of Scripture. Because the rest of the world wants us to believe that God is dead. That he's, he's, he doesn't have anything to do with our lives. And he doesn't care about our lives. And that's why evil happens. No, evil happens because men are sinful. Every single one of us. I've, I've only seen pictures of this. Some of you may be old enough to remember it. I remember being in, in, a, in a religion class in college, and uh, the professor who, who 
explained this to us and showed us this. His name was Dr. Karen Joins. And he showed us a picture of Time magazine that came out in 1966. And it didn't have a picture on the front. It just had words on the front. And it created a controversy, a um, storm of conflict across the nation. And Time magazine 1966 just had on the front, Is God Dead? The question, Is God Dead? And unfortunately, that was a a teaching, a thought that had come about 80 years earlier from a German theologian whose name was Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche. He had turned against his faith, and his philosophy was that God is dead. And I I, I can't quote him um, verbatim, but he said there may be a God still alive in caves for a while, a shadow of a God of, alive in caves, talking about in lives. But he says, our duty is to stop that, is to vanquish those shadows of a God because God is dead. And that's what the world believes. And that is the, the philosophy that we see sweeping across not only our nation, but the entire world, that God is dead. And I want to tell you something, from what we learn in this and many other passages, God is not dead. He is living and he is active and he works in our lives daily. And he reveals himself to us daily. And because he does, that's why we come in here on Sundays, because we know he is an alive God. And all week we've been seeing the evidence of what God does in our life. And so we come in here not to be energized to go and live the rest of the week. We come in here because we've already seen God being alive in our life. And we say, I can't do anything but to praise him. I can't do anything but to study his word that is also alive. This passage teaches us that God is alive. He's a living God. But secondly, what it teaches us about us, one is not going to be in your bulletin. I I should have added it. The second one will be in your bulletin. They're both important for us to understand. We also see what this reveals about us is that we can be called sons of God. We can be called daughters of God. Because we go back and we see in verse 36, uh, for they can't die anymore. And so we're equal to angels. We've received immortality. And look at what he says, and the sons of God... Being sons, you can say daughters of the resurrection. To be given the title a son or a daughter of the almighty God. Do you understand how, how deep that is? A couple years back, we went through the, uh, the book of Galatians. And we spent a lot of time because Paul talks about being sons and daughters of God. And because we're a son, the Bible teaches us because we are, called, we are called a son of God, a daughter of God, that we can call out and we can say these words, Abba. We can say, Daddy, Daddy, to Almighty God. That's who we are. And so many people spend their lives trying to earn a title of of high school graduate, college graduate, CEO, husband, wife, CFO, uh, manager, whatever it might be. And Jesus says, here's who you are, and here's the most important title that any of us can have, to be a son or a daughter of the Most High King, the Almighty Himself. Secondly, this passage reveals to us, not only is He the living God, but we are made alive through Christ. 
Verse 38, now he is not the God of the dead. Why? Because we're alive. We're, he's the God of the living. For all live in him. How do we live in him? Through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the same idea that Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Let me give you an image of what it means to be dead in our trespasses. There's a popular TV show that's been on for countless years, probably 15 years now, called The Walking Dead. And you got all these nasty-looking, gnarly zombies walking around. Paul says that's who we were before Christ. We were just dead men and dead women walking around. We were dead in our trespasses, but we've been made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him, raised us up with Christ. We share in the resurrection of Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are no longer dead men and dead women walking. We are alive in Christ. Let me tell you something. That doesn't mean that we have our lives all together. Amen? We come into this place every Sunday when we're messes. Yes, we are. It doesn't mean that, um, that we are all got it all together and put together the way we want people to see when we post stuff on Facebook that we know is not the, the whole truth. It doesn't mean that we have all the answers. It doesn't mean that we have um, come to a point of perfection in our life. Being alive in Christ, it doesn't mean that um, we have to be in a constant state of smiles and we don't have sadness. Being alive in Christ, it means that our foundation, because we are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, because of our foundation, because we have been made alive by grace through faith, because of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross, that even when we go through suffering, even when the storms come in our lives, and they still come into our lives even as Christians, that we are no longer dead in those sufferings. That we have been made alive. And by grace through faith, we continue on. By grace through faith, we're alive even when we suffer, even when we hear, hear those words from the doctor, even when those that we love have gone on. We continue to live because we've been made alive through the resurrection that we share with Jesus Christ. It changes everything. It changes perspective. 